Welcome to episode 16 of the Invite Along podcast. Hello world, this is Juan. And this is Quentin. We're an international couple traveling around the world for love, work, and the pursuit of wonder. Through this podcast, we invite you to come along with us as we discover places near and far while treading lightly and not breaking the bank. After an incredible wedding in Canada, it is time for us to fly to Europe and start the final chapter of our trip, walking the Camino de Santiago. Today, we talk logistics about the Camino, but before that, we must briefly mention our time in France. It's time for the itinerary and takeoff. Last time we spoke, we were at the Calgary Airport in Canada. From there, we took a flight to Boston and then made our way to Lyon, a city in France. Why Boston? Because actually, the Flying Blue program, which is the loyalty program for KLM, which is the Royal Dutch Airlines, and Air France, has monthly flight promos leaving from specific cities in North America. And when we booked our flights back in April, Boston was the promo city. Interestingly enough, the Air France ticket we bought included not just the flight to Paris, but also a high-speed train from Paris to Lyon on the famous French TGV. So how much did that cost? Calgary to Boston was booked with 22,800 Aeroplan points, which originally we transferred from our Chase account to Aeroplan, while Boston and Lyon worked out to be 33,000 points for two people. Both flights also had fuel surcharges. So we paid 118 for two people on the Canadian leg and 131 on the French leg, respectively, for a total of $249 in fuel surcharges. So if you do the math, that is not too shabby at all to fly from Calgary all the way to France with only this amount out of pocket. Yeah, it was a pretty good deal. And once in France, we stayed with friends in Lyon for a few days, and then later split an Airbnb with other friends by the French Mediterranean coast. There's not much point discussing costs here, since they only apply to our personal situation. But finally, after these few days, we spent one night in Toulouse, on our way to reach Bayonne, where we wanted to start the Camino. The night in Toulouse was at the Crown Plaza Hotel, which is right on the capital square, the main square in Toulouse and we were able to pay with 29,000 IHG points. For all our trips within France, we used trains. Uh, We ended up using all three main types of trains you can find in France. The TER, TER, the smaller regional trains, Intercité, the long-distance trains connecting large cities, and the TGVs, the high-speed trains that can cross over 300 miles in less than two hours. We'll go into more detail about some of those train rides, but for now, we can just say that our total cost to go from Lyon to Hier on the Mediterranean coast to Bayonne was roughly 155 US dollars for the both of us. Okay, and here comes in-flight entertainment, where we discuss what we did this week. And this time, it's a bit of a special one since we are discussing the Camino. But before that, what do we do in France? So the first city we arrived in in France was Lyon. And this is a city that both Quentin and I are familiar with. We visited before, and we visited these specific friends before too. So we spend most of our time with our friends. Shout out to Nico and Lo for hosting us. 
and there's not too much touristy stuff that we did this time around because we just wanted to spend some quality time with our friends and their kids. But we did walk around Vieville, which is the old town of Lyon. Of course, this is a must-do for any first-time visitors, but we just spent an afternoon there. We also checked out the Hôpital de l'Hôtel Dieu, which is a former hospital that's turned into a public space that includes shops, restaurants, and hotels. There was a lot of people chilling out there, and it's kind of a cool, hip place to be these days. And lastly, we also checked out the Parc de la Tête d'Or and the Cité Internationale area of Lyon, which is essentially a giant park that is connected to this center of commerce and art and culture. So again, we walked around the park with the kids and the friends, and we had lunch. Uh, for those of you who are looking on a map, this is near the Contemporary Art Museum. And after Lyon, it was time to go to the Mediterranean coast in the city of Hier, or more precisely, a Airbnb that was a few kilometers away from the city. Now, Hier is a very nice, kind of old medieval city. We did not spend that much time there. Really, most of what we did was stay at the Airbnb with our friends. Uh, the other thing that we did was mostly going to the beaches. There are many cool beaches on a very close area called the Presqu'île de Gien. Uh, Presqu'île means it's almost an island and it's essentially a sort of peninsula that's barely connected to the mainland with a, a what they call a tombolo. It's a small area that you can drive through. It's very beautiful. You have some beautiful beaches, like we said, some beautiful wildlife. Some of the beaches you can reach by car, so they're quite busy. Others you can only hike to, which is what we did with, on one of the days. And also very worth checking out. Still busy because, let's face it, it's the middle of summer in southern France. So you're going to have people everywhere. But we still had a lot of space to ourselves, which was quite lovely. And of course, we spent a lot of time in bakeries buying all sorts of croissants. After a year, we say goodbye to our friends and we made our way to Toulouse with the train. We only stayed one night there, and luck would have it, my sister is currently living a few hours away and was able to make her way there, so we were able to spend one evening with her. So we mostly just got there, met up with my sister, spent a night at a hotel, had some food with her the following day, chatted a bit, and then we were on our way. And with that, we landed in Bayonne, which was the starting point for our Camino trip. And now, let's talk about a Camino, and how we tackled it. So for those of you who've never heard of the Camino before, the Camino just means the way, but we're actually talking about a specific way with a capital W, <laughs> or in this case, a capital C for the Camino. And this is called the Camino de Santiago, which is a Christian pilgrimage walk that started during medieval times to the city of Santiago de Compostela in northwestern Spain. There are many historical paths that Christian pilgrims took throughout the ages to Santiago, and specifically, we are taking the northern route, also called the Camino del Norte. It's historically Christian, but nowadays, all sorts of people walk this path for all sorts of reasons. We're not walking it as Christian pilgrims, but more as a spiritual experience. Yeah, so the Camino is actually a wide network of all sorts of different routes, like Juan mentioned. And you can start from many places in Western Europe, but the Spanish segment is by far the most popular, and this is where you will see most people. In our case, we started in Saint-Jean-de-Luz, 
which is a city just a bit off of Bayonne, so we just took a bus from Bayonne to Saint-Jean-de-Luz. We started there just a bit before the French-Spanish border, so we could cross it by foot. We thought it would be an interesting little moment. The total length of the path we're going to walk from Saint-Jean-de-Luz all the way to Santiago de Compostela is going to be about 860 kilometers. So how can you tell if someone is actually a pilgrim versus a tourist who's just traveling around Spain? Well, all pilgrims are required to have something called a credencial or a credential, and this is kind of like a pilgrim's passport. It records their journeys and opens doors in albergues or these pilgrim accommodations that are for pilgrims only. You have to present your credential. And there are also restaurants that offer special deals called pilgrim menus. And again, you have to present your little credential. Everywhere you go, whether it's a church or a pilgrim-specific albergue, you're able to actually get a stamp on your credential. And when you reach Santiago de Compostela, you can present your credential to finally receive this certificate or Compostela to show that you have completed this way. We stopped in Bayonne because Bayonne is actually one of the historic stops of the pilgrimage and it has a big cathedral in city center. So we thought we would go there, go to the cathedral, go to specifically the pilgrim information desk and pick up our credentials. But actually, they did not have a pilgrim information center anymore at the Bayonne Cathedral for the afternoon arrival. They only have it in the morning, but there was some directions to go to a nearby albergue, and that's where we went to pick up our credentials. And it was the first other pilgrim that we've met on this journey. His name was Paul, and he's from Ireland. Ireland, and he was very nice and highly recommended that we purchase poles from Decathlon, which came in very handy. So I'm very happy we actually made this detour and got to meet Paul. Yeah, this has been honestly a cracking start to the Camino. Uh, once we left Bayonne and got on Saint-Jean-Luz to actually start walking, all the advice he gave us turned out to be honestly true and completely spot on. So what does a typical day on the Camino looks like? If you've heard, we have 860 kilometers to go, which is going to take us about 40 days or so to complete. A typical day looks like this. First, you rise early. Usually you want to be out and about already walking before 8 a.m., usually around 6 or 7 a.m. is more common. You would walk for 5 to 8 hours during the day. Of course, you can stop, you can take breaks for water and food which corresponds to about 20 to 30 kilometers because we're carrying a bag so we are not walking that fast. And that's also why we get up quite early because if you have to walk five or eight hours a day in Spain, even though September is still really quite hot, so you want to avoid the hottest hours of the day. The idea is that you essentially walk in stages from one town to another that are known for being places where you can stay in the night and find some food and find some sort of amenities. However, a lot of people will, and we've done that already, a lot of people will stop maybe a bit before, a bit after the town because they want to stay in a more solitary space or simply because they were did not feel like walking all the way or the opposite. They felt like they walked to the next stage and they still had some energy and they wanted to push a bit further. So once you've walked your entire day, essentially the last thing you have to do is find a place to stay the night. And here there are two main ways. The traditional way is to just show up and try to hit an albergue. We've used that term before. An albergue is essentially a hostel 
that is reserved for pilgrims. So the complete name is usually Albergue de Peregrinos, in for pilgrims. Those albergues do not allow you to book in advance. You arrive and it's first come, first serve. If there are still beds, you're free to grab one. If there are no beds left, you'll have to find another one. And usually these albergues are donation-based. They do not have a fixed price. You give how much money you think you got worth. It's generally considered a good thing to pay at least 15. 10, absolute minimum, 15 would be sort of the standard price actually for a donation. However, sometimes you will not be arriving in time for beds and there might be only a few albergues available. So instead, what you can do is simply book a place. You usually need to book one or two days in advance. Sometimes you can book on the day of into a more standard youth hostel or sort of other cheap accommodation this way. Once you arrive at an albergue and settle into your bunk beds, and typically they are bunk bed situations, it's probably time for dinner. And you can either go out and grab yourself a little dinner, maybe a pilgrim's menu, or go to a grocery store and assemble some sort of meal. And then probably do a little laundry, wash your disgusting socks. (laughs) They are filthy after 20 to 30 kilometers. Hang them to dry and promptly collapse into bed. That's pretty much a typical day. And some albergues have strict lights out hours, and these might be as early as 10 p.m. Yeah, and to be fair, past 10 p.m. there's not that many people still out and about. As we mentioned earlier, you usually get up around 5.30, 6.30, and you've walked the whole day, so chances are by 10 p.m. most people are already soundly sleeping. It's also important to note that the Camino is not like walking in wilderness or through hiking, such as the Appalachian Trail. You are actually walking from village to village, and there are cafes and supermarkets along the way, except for a few early stages of the Camino del Norte that goes through parks and only goes through nature. But the guidebook actually will tell you, oh, you know, there won't be a fountain for X number of kilometers, so make sure today you need a stock up on your water. But typically there are fountains by churches every few kilometers for you to stock up. Yeah, at the end of the day, the goal is not for you to you know, die in the wilderness because you weren't able to find some food and water or shelter. But there are a couple of times where you'll have to know, okay, for the next three to four hours, you will not be seeing you know, a shop or a fountain. So make sure that you have some water, make sure you have some food ready. In terms of costs for a typical day, I would say lunch usually costs about five to ten dollars per person. I'm giving prices in dollars here, of course. We are in Spain, and the currency is the euro, but as time of writing, they're almost a one-to-one conversion rate. So we can discuss either currency, and it works in both ways. So I was saying lunch costs usually around 5 to $10 per person. A lot of places have something they call the pilgrim menu, which are special offers for pilgrims. Specifically, you have to show your credential, as we explained earlier. And for that price, for usually around $10, 10 euros, you will get a full course, like a first meal, second meal, and then a dessert and probably some water or some wine if it's dinner and you're done walking for the day. So that can be a very good deal. In terms of accommodation, like we said, a donativo usually run between 10 and $20 a night. I would say from our personal experience, we've usually spent between 10 and $25 per person per night. So if you add that all together, it costs about... 
I would say somewhere between 30 to $50 per person per day to walk the Camino. To be fair, right now we are still at the start of the Camino del Norte and it is known to be one of the most expensive stretches of all the Caminos because it goes through very touristy areas in the Basque country. Absolutely beautiful, but you are essentially competing for food and shelter and all that with a lot of local tourists or other tourists that are just staying there for a couple of days. And because of that, the prices are a bit jacked up compared to the rest of the Camino. And we'll report back on the different prices as we walk through some of the more rural or secluded areas. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, and in the next weeks, we will discuss more maybe the mental, spiritual, emotional aspects of the Camino. But for this episode, we wanted to refocus on logistics and give you an idea of what it looks like in terms of cold, hard numbers. That's right. And I want to add for breakfast, usually we just have some bread or whatever might be left over from our grocery haul the night before for dinner. Or there are actually cafes with breakfast menus, and these are usually between three to four euros. And it includes, it's always this, it includes some pastry, a freshly squeezed orange juice, and a coffee. I can't believe it. What a steal. You definitely cannot even get a coffee for like $3 in the States, typically. Yeah, this is this has actually really saved, I would say, our walk so far. Just the idea of walking for a couple hours when you're still a bit groggy and not really woken up. And then around 9, 10 a.m. you stop at a city, at a small town, and you're able to, like Juan said, for $4 just get that freshly pressed orange juice, that coffee, and that nice little pastry. It really puts yourself together. That's really what you need to continue your, your way for the rest of the day. But now, unfortunately, it's time for turbulence, the stuff that went a bit sideways this week. When we reached Lyon, we actually ran into a total electric blackout of the metro system. This is an unprecedented event, and this meant that we had to take replacement buses during rush hour to reach our friend's house, and we actually arrived really late. This was just something that was unforeseen. I don't think many people will run into this issue, but it did happen to us. To add to what uh, Juan is saying, is also because of that metro uh, failure, there was just massive chaos at Pardieu, which is the main train stations in Lyon. And there were just so many people just going left, right, and we were a bit lost. We had just gotten off the train after the plane. We were very tired and dazed and confused. Next turbulence, partially self-imposed, was also how incredibly heavy our bags felt as we started walking the first stage of the Camino. So I had brought things that I thought were necessities, but after walking 20 plus kilometers on extreme hilly climbs and dry terrain, I have reevaluated my priorities. And actually, after the first stage of the Camino, when we reached the city of Irun from France, Saint-Jean-de-Luz, combined total, Quentin and I got rid of over four kilograms of stuff from our bags, and we sent it ahead to Santiago. And this is a service that the Spanish Post or the Correos offer where you can have special pilgrim posts and you can just send it to yourself in your destination of Santiago and they'll hold it for you for X number of days. So for example, I had a little toiletry kit with all of my stuff 
And actually, I realized that I don't need the whole kit with the little hangers and all the fancy stuff. I'm just going to use a Ziploc bag to put all my toiletries. So that trimmed down maybe 200 grams. So here and there, we just got rid of all of the stuff that we really don't need in our bags. Yeah, and I have to say that so far, we really haven't been missing most of it. It's more convenient, of course, to have a nice toiletry bag, but... The choice between a bit more convenience and 300 grams less, it's very easily done when you have to carry that on your back all day for 25 kilometers. <laughs> That's right. It was recommended to us to carry no more than 10% of our body weight without food and water. And yeah, we, I think we went over that. So it was great that we had the service in a room to get rid of, I can't believe it, four kilograms of stuff. To be clear, there's also stuff that we still have in our bags such as uh, some of our electronics that we're still keeping because we had them with us in Asia and in our previous trips, and we don't really want to just send them randomly through the post because there's a lot of important documents and important stuff with it, and we'd rather keep it close. But because of that, we also are burdened by a couple more kilograms that we would like. I think in the future, if you know you're just going to do the Camino, you can really scale back way more than us. And we've met people who are able to travel with just five or six kilos of stuff with them. And that's just really two changes of clothes, a toothbrush, some deodorant, and a bit of food, and that's about it. As for turbulence on my end, well, there's another one that Juan hasn't mentioned in terms of train trouble. Now, I am still very much a proponent of public transport. I think it works great. I think it's always a good idea to go for public transport if you can, but I have to say, when we got to Lyon, we had this massive metro blackout, and then when we were leaving Yer, this city in the south of France, to make our way to Toulouse, we were slapped with the biggest delay we had ever seen. Apparently, there was someone on the tracks at some point, we do not know the details, but our train was essentially put to be two hours late which was a big problem because we were supposed to catch another train and we only had one hour of uh, transfer time. So if the first train was two hours late, we were not going to be able to catch the second one. And as we are driving to the station with a friend, I'm sort of updating, trying to see what's going on. And the two hours changed to 15 minutes, to five minutes, back to 40 minutes. It's very confusing. I think the SNCF, sort of French train system, was trying to be optimistic and telling us like, oh no, actually there's going to be no delays. By the time we get to the station, there are a bunch of trains that were supposed to leave 20 minutes ago, still haven't left. Some of them are really, really late by several hours. Some of them are only late by a few minutes. It's very unclear what's going on. We end up actually going onto a different train than the one we were supposed to. And we sort of bet that this train was going to get us to our destination on time. And we were right. Uh, it actually worked out because the train we were supposed to get was one of those trains that stops at all the tiny stations between two main cities. The other one we got directly went to Marseille, which was where we were uh, changing uh, for a train to Toulouse. And we actually had a lovely conversation on a train with a uh, professor emeritus of computer science, actually. Very interesting. But all that to say, it was a very stressful time. I... For some reason, I get very anxious around train being delayed, even more than road traffic or plane issues. I think because in general, there's constant updating of what's going on and you always feel like maybe you're going to be able to make it or maybe you're going to, you're going to be able to 
catch a bus or an Uber or something like that. You know, when you're in an airport and your plane is delayed, there's nothing else you can do. Like, your plane is your plane. You're not going to be able to drive across the Atlantic. But when you have the trains, I feel like you might... Um, I feel like the different possibilities and the different ways you can weigh different options add a lot, actually, of anxiety, which you wouldn't have in an airport. But anyway... We did make it work, we did get to Marseille on time, and then to Toulouse without any further issues. And actually, the train ride from Yer to Marseille is super lovely if you're not in a stressful condition. And I was taking notes at all the stops to see where I might want to visit next time we're in France. And I've decided, so one of the stops is Cassis, and it looks like such a beautiful town. So I definitely want to stay there sometime. Yeah, you can also see the Canonks, those very typical Marseille area cliffs that are just very beautiful as well. Uh, no, all in all, once we were on the right train, going to the right place on time, we had a lovely time. <laughs> Another tiny turbulence I wanted to add is something that we've discovered very quickly on the Camino de Santiago. And it is that many people on the Camino de Santiago have a lot of wisdom and advice to give you. That does not mean that they are correct. <laughs> Juan mentioned, for example, this Correo system where you can send ahead uh, stuff that you don't want to carry with you. You can send it directly to Santiago de Compostela and just pick it up once you make it there. And that's what we did. But before doing that, I wanted to confirm that this was a thing that existed by asking one of the volunteers running the first albergue in Irun where we stopped. It was a bit of a mix of Spanish and French, but he was absolutely convinced that this did not exist and that I was a complete moron for asking. He was like, no, if you send something, they're going to ask you to send it to someone. And if you don't have an address to send it to, they're not going to do know what to do with it. And just very condescending and telling me that it was not going to work. I decided, or like we decided, well, we still see something about that online. So let's go and check it out. Worst case scenario, it doesn't work. And it perfectly worked. And this was the first of several people who tried to impart me some knowledge that turned out to be completely wrong. And I think that's something that we see a lot on the Camino. But, you know, overall, everyone we've met so far has been absolutely lovely. And this is just, you know, take anything in life with a grain of salt. And with that, we go to flying high, the things that really made us feel great this week. So for me, obviously, it is seeing our friends and my sister, Lena. Big shout out to her. I was really, really glad to be able to see all those people before we got on our journey. Uh, of course, you always wish you would spend more time with them, but still. And I'm very grateful that uh, my sister made the move to come see us in Toulouse just for one night. And the other thing that made me feel great is, of course, starting the Camino. It really felt real once you're in there and you're really walking. You're like, wow, I'm doing this. This is happening. In particular, one moment I particularly liked is between Irun and San Sebastian, which is one of the first stages. We were walking what is known as the crest walks and it's one of the known two routes that go this way so you're up on a mountain essentially on a well maybe not a mountain quite a tall hill and at the top of this hill there are these old medieval towers that you can sort of use as um, points for you to guide yourself and one of those towers as we walked around the corner between us and the tower there was this massive 
unmoving, unblinking white horse. Now, you are at the top of a strange mountain you've never been before. It is still relatively early in the morning. There is a lot of fog around you. You are not in a place that you're familiar with. And all you see is a massive white horse seemingly guarding a medieval tower in the middle of the countryside in Basque Country. It was one of the eeriest and most incredible moments of my life. I just felt like King Arthur himself was going to show up, ride that horse and give me a sword or something like that. It did not happen, but I still had a very good time. And I was expecting it to like bust into human language and like ask us a riddle or something. <laughs> yeah, it really felt like this. There were other horses further down the road, but they were just doing normal horse things, like <laughs> moving true. around and eating grass and hennying from time to time. And like, okay, this is what horses are supposed to do. But this guy, this guy was just there, not moving, not doing anything, just being there. And as for me, definitely highlights for me this week include catching up with friends both in Lyon and in Yeh. Shout out to Carmen for celebrating her 30th birthday and bringing all of her friends together for this awesome occasion and chilling time in the south of France. And on the Camino, of course, this has been a dream coming true and in the making for the past decade. So it really came true for me as we are recording and the first day, or one of the first days, when we are hiking up from Irun to San Sebastian, the first segment of this is basically a vertical hike up to the Santorio de Guadalupe, which is a beautiful church. And it was a very difficult hike because you're just starting out, your body's not used to this, you're hoisting your bags, and it is rocky and steep. And at some point, I was having a really hard time, but I hear this music wafting from the top of the mountain. And it turns out that we made it in time for Friday Mass, like morning Mass. And there were so many people there enjoying Mass, being in the spiritual moment. There was a lot of singing. The sun was like shining through the clouds into the valley where we just came up. And it was a very beautiful moment. And it really solidified for me that walking the Camino or starting the Camino was a great decision. Yeah, I would agree. It was an absolutely incredible moment. And I would say happened maybe two hours before the horse. So <laughs> all in all, a big day for us. Yes. And it is widely known that this first stretch of the Camino del Norte is spectacular because of all the things that you might encounter. And indeed, we definitely felt that was the case for us. All right, so that's it for this week. Next week, we'll dive deeper into the Camino and the Basque culture as we visit the city of San Sebastian and make our way across the Basque country by foot. Our schedule is still pretty chaotic, so don't hesitate to follow us on Instagram at invitealongpodcast to get live updates as we're making stories on our walk. Or contact us by email at invitealong at gmail.com for any questions you might have. So long for now. Bye-bye.